Anybody ever just feel awkward like they don't fit? Anybody? Come on, just sometimes we do. This is the thing, is that when we acknowledge that there is a part of us that just feels like we don't fit, one of the things that we are doing is we are acknowledging that there is just something weird with this world, right? Things just aren't the way they should be. Things just aren't the way that they should be. Communication shouldn't be this hard, right? I mean, we have to use words, like, you know? And, like, words are just, they, they cause problems, you know? I mean, we have cultures that get in the way. We have, we, have, we have backgrounds that can be misinterpreted. We're coming from different positions. Communi- it, it feels like we should be able to communicate what? Like heart to heart, spirit to spirit, right? It feels like there's just something that's gone wrong. And I think it's those moments that just reminds me that there is something that's gone wrong. There is something that's gone wrong. There's a beautiful part of the Bible, and it says, it was not so in the beginning. Isn't that a beautiful statement? It was not so in the beginning. And sometimes we can get caught up with trying to figure out exactly what's this and is that. But sometimes if we'll just go back and go, wait a second. Jesus came to set things right. He came to change what was broken in our world. He came to make things right. And so it makes sense that us standing in our broken world, in our world that that doesn't always, it's like, what in the heck's going on? I just don't even understand. Like this doesn't, what is going on We're standing here, and then Jesus offers us this completely different way of living. And our hearts can go towards it, can't it? We're like, oh, my gosh. For a moment, we have this vision of hope. Life can be different. My life can be different. I can live different. I don't have to be intimidated anymore. I don't have to feel this way anymore. I don't have to hold on to my hate. I don't have to hold on to my anxiety. We have this great moment of hope, and we're like, oh, my gosh. But then trying to live out his way in our broken world, it just, it can be a challenge, can't it? And that's why we can't just learn it once. You know, that's why the Bible tells us to take the word of God and to meditate on it day and night. Because it's our reminder. It's that whisper hey, you know how you feel like things just, there's something off, it's just broken? It really is. But you don't have to live broken in a broken world. You can live according to a different sets of values and principles and different things. And so I tell you all of that because I want you to hear my heart when I go to the scriptures is I'm looking for the spirit to remind me again that there's a better way, that there's a bigger picture, that there's a realer reality than even what I'm encountering. Does that make sense? Okay, super excited. It's my first time to get to preach at Bible class. How many of you go to Bible class, um, have been to Bible class before? 
Okay, so just about everybody's been to Bible class before. If you haven't been to Bible class before, um, Pastor Alex, hasn't he just been doing an incredible job? Um, I really encourage you. I think we have a podcast on it. If we don't, we probably should. Um, But anyway, it's it's been talking about discipleship, and he's been doing such an incredible job. And then Philip always just has such a wonderful way of bringing the Word of God alive. Tonight, this is what I want to do. I want us to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, because this is what's on my heart right now in my life. This is what I'm thinking about. This is what I'm I'm kind of meditating on. This is the the reminder that's in my world uh, that the world's different, that life can be different. But a question that I get asked a lot is like what resources I use to study the Bible. So if you're interested in that, listen to this part. If not, just tune out and we'll be back to the other part in like three minutes. Um, BibleGateway.com. Anybody love that? It's pretty great. Yeah. Okay, BibleGateway.com is great, but this is the part that I love about it. Over on the right side, if you click commentaries, you can pull down the commentaries, and if you have a Plus membership, you can access like 200 commentaries. I don't, because the two commentaries I love the most are Matthew Henry's commentary and then the Asbury commentary. So if you're like, why should I read a commentary? It's, it's very helpful because some of these people took a lot of time to write details about the scriptures. If you already know all about this, then just feel great that you already know about this. But maybe this will be helpful to somebody. The other thing is the Bible Project. Has anybody ever watched videos of the Bible Project? Oh, you guys, it is awesome. So especially if you're trying to figure out a little bit more about the Bible, you know, actually just for everybody in the world, but at the same time, especially if you're a little bit new to reading the Bible or new to, you know, really studying the Bible, you know, you can be really old at reading the Bible, but really new at studying the Bible. Isn't that true? So, you know, you can, you can have been familiar with it, but it's like, ah, how do I study the Bible? They actually have an entire series just on how to read the Bible. Very amazing. It's awesome. It explains the three different types of literature in the Bible, Jewish meditation literature, poetry, and then discourse. It explains what each of those are and how to read them. Amazing. Um, Also has little videos that introduce the different books of the Bible. This I actually use with our sixth graders, fifth and sixth grade um, Bible study small group that my um, little girl has once a month, is they read a book of the Bible or theoretically do. And then we watch um, one of those introduction videos, and I hand them the handout. I will be honest, it is a better more detailed, more interesting um, overview of the Bible than probably most of the books I've read. It's that good. It's really great. So Bible Project, just telling you, it's absolutely awesome. Nave's Topical Bible, anybody ever used that? Okay, this is the oldest school, coolest tool for reading the Bible. This is how my mother taught me the Bible. It is a, it's a book, it's Bible, that's organized by topic, So when you want to just read, like, love scriptures, or, like, let's say you're having an anxious night, okay, and you just want to read peace scriptures, I get that you probably can look that up somewhere, but the Knaves Topical Bible, the way that it does it, and the fact that it's a book, so it doesn't have any of that blue light that can, like, disrupt your sleep or whatever, it is the most beautiful thing. You can pick it up, you can highlight, and you can see all of these scriptures just on all of these different topics. It's my fave. I absolutely love it. Um, 
And then there's a few things that I like to do, and and I, I think that probably Alex talked about this, but this is the way that I read the Bible. I try my very hardest not to read the Bible from the perspective of what I can teach, even though that's what I'm doing a lot of the time. Because I don't just preach here, I preach other places. So usually there's something for me to get ready for. But I try so hard not to read it that way. Because I want to read it for this girl. So what is it that I can learn? And what is it that I can apply? Do you see what I'm saying? What is it that I can learn and what is it that I can apply? It doesn't matter which part of the Bible you're reading. You can find something to that. So what is it that I can learn? What, what is it that I can learn about the way God thinks? What can I learn about the way God thinks here? What can I learn about what he thinks about something, right? What can I learn about what he demands from me? What can I learn about the opposite life that he's asked me to live? What can I learn about what he says about me? Ooh, that's a big one, right? how he feels about me. And so how do I, how do I work through all of these different things? That's just, I, I think that that's probably the biggest thing is when you go to read the Bible, try to eliminate the should out of reading the Bible, okay? So like if I ask any of you, I'm like, should, you know, how often do you read the Bible? Probably 80% of the people in our church's answer would be it should be more, Right? Now, imagine how you feel about that, right? I think Philip's talked about this before. The should, has he? Okay, maybe not. Anyway, so, so if, you, if you say, I should read it more, what does that make you think about? Is it the f- future or the past? The past, right? It's like, I should. <sighs> I should, because I didn't back then. You're saying it as reactive, right? But, okay, so, so imagine yourself saying that, and then you say, I could read it more. It's kind of a statement of fact about my current thing. But doesn't that feel a little bit more helpful? And then I can read it more. Okay. I can. I can, you know. And then you start to formulate a plan and you say, I will read it more. Okay. So next time somebody asks you, take the should out. This is, I think, the enemy's greatest one of his things is, you know, you can go to read your Bible and you feel guilty literally opening your Bible that you haven't opened your Bible. Anybody ever had that happen? Like you go to your Bible and you're like, oh gosh, I should read this more. And by the time you've opened it to like four pages, you're like emotionally exhausted because you're feeling bad about when you didn't read it. Instead of reading it with joy going, I'm reading it now, Right? And, and I think that that's important. I think it's important that we expose the, the, the plans of the enemy to rob us, right, of the right now. If I tell you, hey, you, you can read your Bible more, you know what, and I'm just speaking life over you that you will read your Bible more, that you will study your Bible more. It's not a bad thing or it's not um, inauthentic to just go right home from here and read your Bible. But doesn't it sometimes feel un- inauthentic? It's like, oh, I, I mean, the only reason I'm doing it is because she said that. It's just like in, in a relationship, you know? Well, the only reason that you're being nice to me or you're cleaning the dishes or you're doing whatever is because, y- you know, I reminded you. Yes, 
Yes, that is, that is correct. And you know what? That shows responsiveness. That doesn't show inauthenticity. That shows that I truly have a desire to respond. Do you see what I'm saying? So let's not be ignorant of the strategies of the enemy to separate us from moving forward in our walk with God. Every single one of us could do more, right? But the question is, will we move towards the can? Will we move towards the will? I could do more. But gosh, when I come to the Bible, I don't want to bring any guilt or shame. I want to come with joy because I want to come with the expectation that it's going to transform my life, right? Anybody come to the Johannes um, meetings? Anybody come to any of them? Okay. We had Johannes Amritzer the last few weeks, uh, nights or whatever, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And what I loved about it is there was such anticipation. Okay? People came hungry and ready. We can change the way that the Bible impacts us by just coming expectant. Expectant. I'm going to open it, and I'm going to understand it. And if I don't understand it, I'm going to read a commentary. And if I don't understand the commentary, I'm going to watch a video. Do you see all the resources that we have now? But we're expectant going, there's a nugget in there for me, and dadgummit, I'm going to get it. Do you see what I'm saying? This really is the way that I feel, but it really is the way that I study. And it's the way that, that the Bible has impacted me the most is when it's not just a chore, but I really do come at it with expectation. Okay. Are we ready? Let's do this. Let's do this. Oh, here's an important point. Can you put a clock on the back? Because I have no sense of time. I'm a mother. You want me just to find my phone, Eddie? Would that be easier for you? Oh, I got it. I got my phone. It's fine. It's fine. All right. Okay. Here's another important point for studying the scripture. We use scripture to interpret scripture. Have you ever heard of this? Okay, so we use scripture to interpret scripture. It's really important. You should remind yourself of that all the time. And this is why. It's because legal um, contract interpretation language has gotten into our society so much that now we use it even in the way we interact with people. Right? So have you ever heard somebody say, well, you said, and then they want to hold you to the exact letter that you said? That really comes from our legal framework, right, of that you are held responsible to the exact language of the contract. Or if somebody says, well, that doesn't mean that. That means this, right? And you're like, no, that wasn't my meaning. And they take control of the meaning of your statement, right, because they say, well, that's the plain language. That's a legal interpretation uh, uh, way of interpreting contracts. It's because they take the plain language. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's like, well, this, but we can, if we're not careful, we can allow that culture to, to seep into the Bible. And then we can ignore the cultural context. We can ignore the author's intent. We could ignore the context within the bigger story of the Bible. We can ignore the context of theme. We can ignore all of these things, and we can end up missing out on what the Bible's really trying to tell us. 
So it's so important that we understand that. It's not just that, yes, we use scripture to interpret scripture. It's that that concept actually contradicts the way that the West interprets language and communication and contracts and and legal documents. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see how our culture can be so insidious to even rob us from being able to? Okay, awesome. I'm excited. All right, Matthew 5. You ready? Who has a Bible? Who has an actual physical Bible here just for fun? I bet there's one person. Come on, somebody. She has one. All right, who has a version Bible on their phone? Come on, somebody. I love that. If you do not have either, we have New Testaments in the back. Just saying. All right. Matthew 5. Matthew 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to them. Then he began to teach them, saying, let's stop right here. This Sermon on the Mount is incredibly, incredibly important because what Matthew is trying to do as an author is he is trying to show the Jews that this truly is the Messiah. And so he does that in three ways. He shows Jesus as in the line of David, Jesus as the new Moses, and then Jesus as Emmanuel, who is the Messiah, the God with us. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's very important because if we go back to the Ten Commandments, and we, the Ten Commandments are the most famous of the Law of Moses, but the Law of Moses books are long. They are very long. And in fact, they're very long. They're very long. People who first come to faith and start in Genesis, I'm like, no, don't do that. You need to read the whole New Testament through like twice before you start diving into the other stuff. Get like a children's Bible book and read the stories out of that. But like before we're going to like dig into the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, you need a little background. Okay. So Moses, who is the great deliverer of the Israelites, he is the one who brought them out of Egypt on God's behalf, right? God sends him to Egypt and he brings them out of Egypt and he takes them over the Um, He takes them over the Red Sea, through the Red Sea, and he takes them all the way to the cusp of the promised land. He's really important. He's a very important deliverer, and he is the guy when it comes to Jewish theology. And now Jesus is coming, and Matthew is, is making the case, because remember, this is not a videotape recording. This isn't a transcript of a YouTube video. This is Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing something where the entire structure matters, not just the words, right? And so he's writing the structure, and he shows Jesus as doing the same thing that Moses does. See, in the first part of this book, he literally brings Jesus out of Egypt. He tells that part of the story. And then he tells the part of the story of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River. So out of Egypt, through the water. Do you see it, the parallel? And then he sends Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days, just like the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years. And now we get to chapter 5. And Matthew is showing us Jesus. He's recording this event in Jesus' life, and he's pointing it out. Because remember, he could have recorded any event in Jesus' life. The uh, the Gospel of John tells us that there is so much about Jesus' life that the books couldn't contain it. That's what the Gospel of John says. 
So he could have recorded any event in Jesus' life. But this is an important event that the Holy Spirit wants us to know about because he wants to show the Jews, God's people, that he is now Moses, that he's the new Moses, that he is a lawgiver, that he is a teacher, a prophet. Do you see what I'm saying? And it's so beautiful because Jesus goes up on a mountain. But instead of going up on the mountain and getting the message from God and bringing it back down to the people, see this. This is beautiful. He goes up on the mountain and invites the people to the mountain. And then he begins to teach them. Do you see the difference? See, when Moses went up on the mountain, no one could even touch the mountain or they would die. When Moses went up on the mountain, he was the only one who was allowed to meet with God. But Jesus has come as God to connect with us. And when he goes up on the mountain, he says, you get to come too. And he invites them. And they all sit down. And then he begins teaching the opposite life. This beautiful Sermon on the Mount that is literally like the opposite life. All right? You ready? Okay, let's do this. Throughout this whole chapter, just think of this. He's saying over and over again, I want you to live life and do your stuff my way. Because remember, that that's what, I mean, the law of Moses is detailed. It's about every part of society, okay, every detail you can imagine. But Jesus is boiling it down and saying, hey, I still want you to do your stuff my way, but this is the new way of living, all right? Okay, he says this, blessed, the Amplified Version says, spiritually prosperous, happy to be admired. Are the poor in spirit, the Amplified Version tells us that that means those devoid of spiritual arrogance, those who regard themselves as insignificant, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. I think this is important. Regarding yourself as insignificant doesn't mean that you have bad self-esteem. It means that you have a pretty good grasp on reality. We are on a ball hurtling through space. We are one of, I think it's eight billion people on the planet who exist this moment. And in terms of the cosmos, right, we are insignificant. In terms of the span of time, regardless of what creation theory you believe in, it's a really long time. Our 60 years, our 80 years, our 100 years is insignificant. And when we have that realization, what comes over us when we understand that God adores us? What humility overcomes us? And then we can understand the scripture that says, who am I? Who am I that you would think of me, right? Who am I that you would consider me? Who am I? That's not bad self-esteem. That's a good grasp on reality. And it says there, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Think about that. Because they understand theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then blessed are those who mourn, 
for they will be comforted. Every commentary I looked at said that this was in the context of being forgiven when we mourn over our sins and we repent. And that comfort comes from when the burden of sin is lifted. And that's a beautiful point of view. I think that's lovely. Don't you think that's lovely? I mean, it's a beautiful thought that if we really mourn our sin, that we have the opportunity to be comforted by God's forgiveness. I think that's beautiful. But for anyone who's ever had loss, I think you also know that mourning is a gift from God because it allows our spirits and our hearts to become whole and healthy again. It's important one of the most important things my, my counselor ever taught me, I was, I was dealing with um, anger. And if you were wondering about counseling, I go all the time. I mean, I, I, love, I love my counselor. He's called a cognitive coach because he has to do it across state lines, but that's neither here nor there. I love my counselor. He's a Christian man. He's awesome. He, he counsels Philip. He counsels me, and he counsels us together. And it has been a wonderful journey. We've been doing counseling since before we got married. And I can't recommend it enough. But anyway, one of the things my counselor taught me is I was dealing with anger. Like, and I'm not an angry person. You know, if you're an angry person, you're okay with being angry. Does that make sense? Like, it doesn't tear you up on the inside. Like, you're like, no, this is the natural reaction to life. Like, Philip actually at his, like, base level is just that would be his natural reaction. Okay? God has completely transformed his heart, and it's beautiful. But, like, he doesn't, it doesn't upset him to get angry. Do you hear what I'm saying? It upsets me. If I, I feel like the world has fallen apart when I get angry. I don't like, it's, it's not my nature. But I was getting really angry. I was like, what is going on? Is it this? Is it that? Ah. And my counselor said something that I'll never forget. He said, you know, what I really think is that you're grieving. And you just won't let yourself grieve. Well, then I cried, and that was annoying, and that made me angry. But, but it, it was true. There were some things in my life that I had never just gone, man, I, I'm really sad about that. It wasn't about pinning blame on anyone. It wasn't about even fixing anything. It was just going through. And I couldn't get on the other side to be comforted until I was vulnerable enough to mourn. So I like, I like to think of this scripture, and I think it's fair to think of this scripture in both ways. That if you mourn over your sin, that you're going to be comforted. But also, if you give in and allow the Holy Spirit to help you to grieve, that that's going to lead to comfort too. The Bible says that weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It's a promise of comfort. Then verse 5, blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. This just doesn't seem true, does it? Because in a world where might makes right, doesn't it feel like being gentle is just at the exact opposite of who gets to own the earth? I mean, whoever yells the loudest is the one who gets the attention, right? Whoever demands the most scares the people around. It's, it's terrifying. Even just right now, what, what we're going through as a world, all the different wars, all the different, it feels like might makes right. 
but that's not the Jesus way. Because inheriting the earth is more than just winning the present battle. Inheriting the earth is about the long term, right? It's about the long term. And when we choose, when we choose to be gentle, when we choose, and I love this definition of being gentle, um, when we choose to, let me find it, verse 5, kind-hearted, sweet-spirited, and self-controlled. Man, that can feel like a personality trait, right? Philip's not here, so I get to tell on him. Um, we had this ongoing fight when we were um, when we were first married, and I would say, "You're being mean," and he would say, "I am not being mean," and I was like, "Yes, you are. You're not saying you're you're being mean," and he'd go, "I am not being mean. Nothing I have said is mean." And then I would say, "Okay, but was it nice?" And he'd say, "Just because it's not nice." Doesn't mean it's mean. (laughs) This is calling really that out. And it's saying, hey, there isn't a neutral. We we have to be kind-hearted, right? We have to be self-controlled. We have to be those things. And we if we're gonna be that, I mean, I'm a mom of five. If I'm gonna be that, I'm gonna have to have the Holy Spirit help me. It's that opposite life. He's building the case for man. You need Jesus, and I need Jesus too. Verse 6 says this, Joy, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Think of how important this is to your well-being and to my well-being. It's horrible to hunger and thirst and think that you will never be satisfied. There's, there's some type of mass. Oh, you know what? I don't even have to go to Greek mythology to talk about this. Pirates of the Caribbean, right? What's the curse? They, they can't eat, they can't drink, and they never can be. It doesn't matter how much they consume, they aren't satisfied. It's also part of Greek mythology. That was considered like this. It, it's, it's so deep in our history. It's so deep in our culture that that is like one of the worst things that we can ever imagine, right? It's eating and drinking and not being satisfied. And that is one of the lies that culture will tell you about Christianity. Well, you, you can't ever... You can't ever be satisfied by all of that. You're just always, you know what? Just longing and hunger is just the way that humans are built. But as Christians, we can have a trust that when we hunger and and thirst after righteousness, after right living, after being in right alignment with Christ over everything else, that we have a chance to be satisfied. It's like the scripture, it says, in order to please God, we have to believe he exists and is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This is a contrast to agnostic thought, which is nothing is known or can be known about the nature of God, and deist thought, which is the believer in a creator who does not intervene in human realm. This is saying, hey, listen, you actually can be connected to God. And it's a promise for us. Verse 7 says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. I think this is important. Mercy from whom? Mercy from whom? Have you ever been incredibly merciful to somebody and then they weren't merciful back? If you have children, you've had this experience. You know, if you don't, then, yeah, you've probably still had this experience, right? Like you've been merciful to somebody. Maybe you let something slide at work for somebody. You covered for a coworker, and you were really kind to them, and you gave them mercy. But next time it was your number, right? 
Next time you made the mistake, they didn't help you out. And you can look at that and you can go, well, the scripture. But this is in the context of a bigger picture. When I give mercy to others, who gives mercy to me? God, right? When I give mercy to others, I get mercy from God. Now, is the principle of sowing and reaping, is it real? Will I end up getting mercy from other people too? Probably. But I've known people who've been incredibly merciful, who have not been shown the level of mercy that they gave. But I do believe that they received it from God. So it's important that we understand that that the blessings that come from God, sometimes we see them around us. Sometimes we see it being paid back right in this moment. But sometimes it has to do with us and God. And I don't know about you, but if I have to choose between having mercy from other people and having mercy from God, I know who I want to pick. Let's go to verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart they will see God. I, I want to read the Amplified in this. Blessed, anticipating God's presence, spiritually mature. <laughs> it's beautiful. Are the poor, pure in heart, those with integrity, moral courage, and godly character, for they will see God. This is what one of the commentaries said about this, and it's so beautiful. Undivided in their loyalty towards God, they will enjoy true intimacy with him. You know, it's when our loyalty is divided that our intimacy is affected. When we, when we are trying to play the one, one leg in the world, you know, kind of, you know, all right, well, I'm, you know, I'm just, world, I'm just, I'm just playing this game. And, I, and then one leg in God's kingdom, and we feel like we can't keep a stable footing, and we can't. Because that's not the way we were meant to live. If we want to see God, if we really want to be able to walk in that peace and in that perspective that changes everything, if, if you've followed Jesus for very long, you've had those moments of clarity where you see yourself in the big picture. And you go, man, this is amazing. Like, I'm part of his story. This is amazing. It's not just about my story. It's not just about my happiness. It's not just about my fulfillment. It's not just about my lifetime. It's not just about me. I'm part of this massive story. And and what happens when we get in alignment with this story? We feel such peace and relief and power all at the same time. We feel peace because it's like it's going to be okay. Then we feel relief because it's not all up to us. But then we feel empowered to actually take action because we're not so afraid of messing everything up. We're not the only one. We're part of his story. We trust him to work out the details. And it's this beautiful moment of clarity, but it's so easy to lose that. Because we live in a world that's messed up. And that's why I have to keep coming back to the scriptures and allowing it to touch our hearts. And then it says this. It says, blessed are the makers and maintainers of peace, for they will be called the sons of God. I loved this, and I want to just, just say it to you. The reference to peacemakers involves more than simply avoiding conflict or even attempting to reconcile warring parties. It stems from the Old Testament understanding of peace as comprehensive wholeness and well-being. Think about that for a minute comprehensive wholeness and well-being. How would viewing peace that way change the way 
we defined whether a society was peaceful, whether a family was peaceful, whether our own self was peaceful. I just think it's so beautiful. Those who pursue this kind of peace, this comprehensive wholeness and well-being, do all they can to promote the welfare of others. Since God actively desires wholeness for all persons, he gladly will claim as his own sons those who share in this enterprise. I love that. I love that. All right, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for doing what is morally right, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you try to live according to even these principles, In those few verses, you will fall under persecution. Now, look, there's a definition of persecution that is so extreme that it basically means that nobody in the Western world could ever experience persecution. And let me be the first to say what the Chinese church is going through right now, like as we speak, what um, Christians in Afghanistan or North Korea or other places that don't have the freedoms that we enjoy are going through is a whole different level. But we all know that when you try to live out a new way, come on, when, when you stop gossiping at work and you start, like, building people up, when you start building bridges instead of burning them down, when you stop playing those games, right, when you start living, when you start saying, my loyalty is to God first, and and you know what, that means that I'm going to live my life a certain way with a certain level of integrity. I'm not, I'm not willing to do that shady business deal anymore. That's real. That's not theoretical. That's real. That's something that we face every day. When we start doing that, there's opposition, period. When, when you start, when you stop complaining about your spouse at the water cooler and start using your words to build up instead of to tear down, it gets offensive to people real quick. Not everybody. Not saying every person. But the Bible doesn't want you. God doesn't want you. Jesus doesn't want you to be caught underwear. This is like the warning sign, right? This is the warning clause. It's saying, hey, this is the way that you should live, but if you live this way, there are inevitable consequences. And it keeps going. It says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things about you because of your association with me. Be glad and exceedingly joyful, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, I think that there's a great fear in American society now, and and I'll go back to what has happened because of the legal um, community. Entrepreneurial lawyers in the 1970s and 80s started suing everybody for everything. This is, a, this is a real thing. Um, you saw class action lawsuits. You saw some of the wealthiest people in the United States become um, these class action lawyers. And there's some good things that came out of that. I mean, you know, tobacco industry or whatever. But there also are some really bad things. And one of the bad things is the incredible fear that Americans carry about fault and liability. 
and our inability to just say I'm sorry because of what that could mean. Do you see what I'm saying? That burden, but it's also the fear of, oh gosh, they, they, they could, this could be blown so far out of proportion. I could lose everything, right? Then you compound it with social media and the fear of embarrassment. I had a sweet 25-year-old girl who I'm very close to, and she just told me, she said, Destiny, the biggest fear for me and my friends is that we're going to get embarrassed. I mean, can we be real? That's, that's hard. None of us want to be embarrassed. None of us want to feel naked in front of the world because of the way we're living or because of the way we believe or because of what we're associated with. None of us want to feel that way. But I'll tell you what will counteract that fear is just knowing it's part of the deal. Right? Like, this is when you're vulnerable, is when you're walking down the street, la, 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 and somebody just comes out of nowhere and punches you, right? I did not know I was at war with you. I did not know there was a fight going on today. I did not know. But when you're walking down that same street aware, you actually can be less afraid because you can be prepared. And then when you realize, and I'm about to read then you realize that there's a reward waiting for you. See, I love that. Jesus doesn't just say, by the way, it's going to be tough. You're going to have lots of persecution. Good luck. He says, so don't get upset about it. You're blessed. The word blessed there has the connotation of you're courageous. Nobody gets to be courageous without opposition. Nobody gets to be courageous without, right? You don't get to be courageous when it's easy. I'm not courageous for planting a garden in the back of my house, even though it's hard. You know, I'm not, nobody, nobody told me I couldn't. There's no opposition there. Do you see what I'm saying? Maybe a good thing to do, but there's no, there's no opposition. But when we know there's going to be opposition, when we know that we're going to experience persecution, when we know that people may belittle us because of our faith and because it's so important to us, when we know that we may run against people who don't like our level of integrity or our level of truth-telling or whatever you want to say, our level of loving other people, in here it says some crazy stuff we're going to get to next week where it talks about, like, you should love your enemies, and that may seem like it's an acceptable thing. It is not. It's not. When you live that way, when you live the way Jesus lived, yes, you're going to come up against some major opposition, but there is a reward. And as long as I know I'm in a war room, but my battle's not against that person who's being a jerk to me. That's what the Bible says. It says we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers in high places. What does that mean? It means what we can't see is greater and more real than what we can see. And when I look at a person who's coming at me, when I deal with a boss who has it out for me, when I'm realizing that, man, gosh, it's, It's just my very existence that is offensive to you. (laughs) 
my alignment with the name of Jesus. You, you really, like you're very offended by people who really believe things that you don't believe. Wow, that's, that's interesting. But when I realized that that's not about that person and that actually the Jesus way is to not even focus on fighting them, it's to focus on loving them, it's to focus on that humility, really revealing and realizing that I'm insignificant in the whole world. Hey, you want to go after me? That's fine. Greatest moment in my life was when I realized I was judgment-proof. Anybody know what that means? That means you don't have enough money for a lawyer to actually want to come after you. You're called judgment-proof. It was the greatest moment. And you know what happened? I was actually worried about getting sued, and my mentor told me, oh, babe, you're judgment-proof. And I was like, well, that feels insulting, but it feels very liberating. You know what? You're judgment-proof. You're judgment-proof because your judge is in heaven. He's the only one who can take. The Bible says don't worry about people who can just mess with your life here on earth. Worry about God who controls your ultimate destiny. Do you see the strength that can come from that? So I might be facing the same opposition. I might be facing the same embarrassment. I might be facing the same whatever. But suddenly I have strength, and not just strength to endure it, but strength to look at that person like they are a human being that Jesus died for, which is the whole point. You can come and play and make this next part sound good, Austin. That would be great. And that's what it gets to. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Man. But if the salt has lost its taste, its purpose, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and walked on by people. (laughs) You know, salt does three really important things. Salt preserves, right? That's how we get sauerkraut and all kinds of other things that are really yummy and delicious. Just pour a bunch of salt on them, leave them there for a while, and it's like, mm, that's good. But back before refrigeration, it, it, was, it was life and death. Salt was important to preserving things. You know what else salt does? We don't use it for this, but salt disinfects. Battlefield Salts were important because they disinfected. They draw out the impurities. And then salt flavors. <laughs> I love that. Adds flavor. My cooking has gotten better recently. I know you have all been praying about it, so I just wanted to report. Um, and, and one of the reasons is because is I read this really funny article, and it said that most home cooks... Um, their meals aren't very good because they don't put enough salt in it. So I just doubled the amount of salt I was putting in everything, and suddenly everybody's really happy. Salt flavors. It preserves. Preserves the good things. It disinfects and takes away the bad things. And then it flavors. It adds flavor to our world. But tell me this, have you ever read a recipe that said, I want one grain of salt? Make sure, just add one, add one grain of salt. You never see that, do you? 
It's always a whole shaker of it, teaspoon of it, tablespoon of it, right? Just just pour it all in there. <laughs> if you're like me, it's like a palmful. That's the way we measure in my house. It's a palm. It's a little palm. Salt does its best work when it's together. It's just the way it is. It's why community is so important. It's why gathering on a Wednesday after you're tired and you've already been at work all day is important. Because when we get together, it's like we recharge our saltiness. And then when we go out into our community together, I just like to think of like every time you leave these doors, it's just a big salt shaker all over Bossier. Just preserving, disinfecting, flavoring. Tomorrow when you go back to work, when you go back to school, when you go back into your home, when you're teaching your kids, this time together, it just makes a difference. Because it's hard to live all that out. It's hard to to deal with it. But when you're together, I can encourage you and you can encourage me. You can remind me, hey, you're really insignificant. And I can go, that's right. I shouldn't have to be, I'm not carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders. I know the one who is though. And he said that he would take my burden and that he would give me his burden and that it would be light and easy to carry. Well, that's not true, Sister Destiny. The Bible says it is, though. I don't have to be overburdened. I can carry his burden. And I can be salt. I can be one of the salt. I don't have to be the only salt. 